Our second reading is from Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! The word of the Lord. America has many legends and folk tales. Um, if you're familiar with some of them, they include people like Paul Bunyan, the lumberjack who was famed for basically building the frontier lands with his lumberjack skills. People like Johnny Appleseed who spread apple trees across the Ohio River Valley. People like John Henry, the steel driving man who was famed for driving his, his sledgehammers through a tunnel trying to beat a machine. And then we have real life legends. People like Abraham Lincoln, right? Grew up poor and in the frontier at age nine, his mom died. He was completely self-educated and became a lawyer, eventually elected to office and eventually president of the United States and has gone down as one of the most influential people in the history of the world. We have some that are more recent as well. Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers recounts the tale of a young man at age 13 in the late 60s who had access in the late 60s to one of the very few supercomputers in the entire world. His private school in the state of Washington happened to have access to this, and so he spent evenings and weekends programming. So that by the time he got to Harvard at age 17, he had logged more than 10,000 hours programming computers. The computer science professors didn't know as much as him. So at age 19, he left, gathered some friends, and started this company called Microsoft. And a few years after that, Michael, I mean, Bill Gates was worth billions of dollars and has gone down in history as one of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time. Then there's people in our storyline, in our American storyline, like Mike. Now, Mike was best friends with Leroy. When they were both sophomores, they were both very good athletes. They both loved basketball. They both tried out for the varsity team as sophomores, thinking, of course, we'll make it because we're very good. Now, Leroy was was six foot seven, and Mike was only 5'11". Leroy made the team, but Coach Herring told Mike he's going to have to play JV this year. Instead of being dejected, he decided to work harder, and he spent that entire sophomore year averaging 40 points a game for his JV team. He made varsity next year. A few years later, he went to UNC and eventually to the Chicago Bulls. And Michael Jordan was famous for being able to dunk from the free throw line with tongue stuck out and arm in behind him. He was famous for his flu game 
a game in 1997 in the NBA Finals when he had fever and vomiting and still scored 38 points in a win. Six titles and 30 points a game later, Michael Jordan went down in history as somebody that everyone growing up in that era wanted to be like. We all wanted to be like Mike. We wanted to just do it. What do most all of our American stories have in common? Hard work. People who made something of themselves. They earned it. And success. Achievement and lasting impact and exceptionalism. Americans love winners. We are a merit-based, performance-oriented culture. Not just in Northern Virginia, but across America. We are a merit-based, performance-oriented culture. We value beauty and talent and wealth. And from an early age, we pursue accolades and success. But if those are our values and pursuits, what do they say about those who don't succeed, who can't just do it? What's the value of those who are not talented, smart, or successful? Christianity makes this claim. Our dignity and our worth, as well as our purpose and calling, are meant to be found in God. They're meant to be found in who we are, not in what we do or accomplish. And it's because we are made in the image of God, as we talked about two weeks ago. Because we are made in the image of God, everyone is equally sacred, equally endowed with dignity given by God. And that's at the root of what God is calling Israel to in Deuteronomy chapter 10 that we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at this morning. In Deuteronomy 10, verses 16 to 19, the Lord through Moses says to Israel, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, as well. The book of Deuteronomy occurs at the very end of Israel's wilderness wanderings. They have been brought out in the Exodus and spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. They're now at the edge of the promised land, and through Moses, God is going to renew his covenant with Israel. You are my people. I have chosen you. Follow in my ways, and I will be with you. And so Deuteronomy is a renewal of the covenant 40 years later, much like a a wedding renewal that some people do at 20 or 40 or 50 years when they renew their vows. Well, they were renewing the covenant. And in the midst of this, God speaks directly to Israel saying, I want your hearts. In verse 16, circumcise your hearts. Now, circumcision was the outward physical mark on every Jewish male saying that they are one of God's people. It was an outward and religious action. And the Lord says, I don't just want your outer religion. I want your heart cut and marked for me. God is after inner transformation, not just religious practice. 
And it should look like this, God says, I am God of gods, and verse 18, I execute justice for the fatherless and the widow. I love the sojourner. If your heart is marked for God, it will look like the God who loves the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner. Let's sit on those three words for just a little bit, fatherless, widow, and sojourner. These three occur together numerous times in the Old Testament, about a half dozen in Deuteronomy, several times in the Psalms, and again in the prophets. Now, you have to remember as we think about these words, the way the ancient Near Eastern world was set up. It was set up as a patriarchal society. It was built around male heads of household. What was important was land and owning land and your status in the community tied to a male head of household. The aim was to have sons. Sons could inherit your land and keep them in the family, and sons could carry on your family name and thus your status in the community. Having sons, inheritance, and status was good for the clan. The fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner were not good for the clan. They typified and were the primary subject of the landless people in the ancient world. They did not own land and had no rights to it, and they had no tie to a male head of household. In other words, the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner were of no benefit to any community or family. They were only a drain and a burden. And because they had no tie to a male head of household, they had no defense or, or recourse in the community. They were voiceless, which meant, by most standards, they were subject to exploitation and abuse. It was not uncommon for them to have to resort to begging, prostitution, or slavery just to survive. No rights, no protection, no way to provide for themselves. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner, the foreigner, were worthless and hopeless. Today, today, we ask, who fits that bill today? Those on the farthest fringes, the margins, the voiceless, the defenseless. And of course, there are all sorts of people who fit that from minorities to the undocumented, to anybody that is out of power, but especially given the way that the fatherless widow and sojourner were understood, those at the deepest fringes, those who have no voice on their own. So two that I'm going to look at this morning are those at the beginning and end of life and those who are not able. So one, one modern version of the fatherless widow and the and the sojourner are those at the very beginning and the very end of life, the unborn and the aging and dying. Now, just to look at the end of life this morning, the death with dignity movement or the right to die movement, which is really just the idea of euthanasia or assisted suicide, began having its movement across Western Europe and even North America over the past 20 to 30 years. And Every country in which it has been brought in as something that was on the fringes has now become normative. So that in the beginning in Holland, when 
assisted suicide was being allowed to happen, it really was at the very end of life. But eventually, people argued that they might be in such anguish mentally that they should be allowed to die as well. And so, over the past 10 years, there have been numerous people in a place like Holland who have been euthanized because of depression, autism, blindness, loneliness, or because they simply did not want to be dependent on somebody else. In Belgium, a couple in their 80s decided to be euthanized together in order to avoid the anguish of widowhood. A young man who was paralyzed from the neck down in the UK convinced his parents to take him to Switzerland to be euthanized because his life was no longer worth living. There's not much of a difference between suicide and assisted suicide the more it becomes open in a society. Now, to be fair, the idea of right to die or death with dignity sounds good. But in the West, do you know where it's grounded? It's grounded in the primary value that our worth, our worth as humans, is found in having autonomy. In other words, if I can't do what I want on my own, then life is not worth living. But if that's our value and our understanding of what life worth living is about, what does it say to somebody whose life is constrained by poverty or illness or disability or who is partially or even totally dependent on others? Is their life worth living? And that brings us to another portion of the people who fit the fatherless, widow, and sojourner, the disabled, the mentally and physically disabled. Kids, kids who are in here, if we were to ask the average student walking through Madison High School tomorrow, or even go to one of the local elementary school kids, if we could actually get a kid to talk and say, what makes you valuable or worthwhile? And we prodded a little bit deeper into it. My guess it would be things that they are good at. I get A's. I made the all-star team. I got into a good college. From an early age, kids are pursuing beauty, intelligence, athleticism, popularity. And actually, if we probably went around and asked our kids in here, what is it that your parents encourage in your life or what do they critique about you? What is it that your parents are always riding you about? And what are they celebrating in your life? My guess is it would fit in categories that involve hard work, achievement, and performance. Those are the things that we as parents ride our kids about, and those are the things we celebrate. Their achievements, their lack of hard work. So this is something we elevate from an early age. But what about kids who don't and aren't able to measure up? The DSM-V scale, the diagnostic scale that the American Psychological Society puts forth for intellectual disability looks like this. It categorizes mild, moderate, severe, and profound disabilities. 
85% of those with, uh, with intellectual disability fall in the category of having an IQ of 50 to 70. They'll be able to achieve late elementary school math scores. They'll be able to read but not comprehend. And they'll be capable of independent living. About half of those with Down syndrome fall into this category. But as you go down further, what you find is independent living and communication becomes more and more constrained. Somebody with severe disability has a 20 to 35 IQ. They understand speech but little ability to communicate. And they will probably need supervision the entirety of their lives. In a culture where performance and abilities and accomplishments are what we value the most, what does it say about the life of the disabled? What is somebody with severe disability ever going to accomplish? Approximately three-fourths of babies who are prenatally screened to have Down syndrome will be selectively aborted. Why? They will never be as successful as their peers. They will be a burden, and the parents-to-be know it. I'm not saying that's an easy decision to have to fall into, but our culture makes it much harder to let that child live. Amy Julia and Peter Becker, a young, attractive, incredibly intelligent couple. She graduated from Princeton, he graduated from UVA. She was a talented and up-and-coming writer. In 2005, they were gifted with the birth of a little girl. Amy Julia, writing in the magazine First Things, said, our daughter was born at 5.22 p.m. on December 30th, 2005. Two hours later, a nurse called my husband out of the room. When he returned, he took my hand and said, they think Penny, our daughter, has Down syndrome. We had a hard time celebrating her birth. We didn't open the bottle of champagne perched by my bedside. We were afraid to call our friends and family. We didn't shout, she's perfect, like the other parents in the hallway. In fact, those words haunted me. The medical language used for Down syndrome implies a special brand of imperfection. She's disabled, as if Penny were a defective piece of machinery that had been turned off. Or she's retarded, with all of its connotations of stupid and subhuman. Or she's abnormal, like a cancerous growth. I found no comfort in the technical terms. My faith didn't help much either. Without even knowing it, my mind held a theological grid, a mental chart of how the universe worked. The only thing that chart told me about Down syndrome, the presence of an extra chromosome in every cell of Penny's body, was that it was a manifestation of sin in the world. Now, by that, I don't mean I thought Down syndrome was immoral, but I did think that because the entire cosmos was out of whack, bad things happened. Bad things like malaria and hurricanes and extra chromosomes. And if having an extra chromosome was on par with disease and destruction and other things that are not of God, what did that say about our daughter? 
My theology at first seemed to affirm the medical language. It seemed that even by God's standard, Penny was in another category of human being altogether, not merely fallen like the rest of us, but defective, a mistake. And yet, even in those early dark hours of her life, Penny's presence, her sweet face and tiny hands and warm body, knocked against my grid, jostled my presuppositions about human wholeness and human sin. I started to understand that Penny was a gift from God, a precious human being, a child with much to offer. Hans Reinders, a German ethicist who had to flee Nazi Germany in the early 30s, wrote, in the loving eyes of God, there are no marginal cases of being human. God loves every person. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, calls Israel to reflect him and not the cultural norms of the ancient Near East in their love for the defenseless and the least. God calls Israel to provide for and protect the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. If you read through the rest of Deuteronomy, there's instructions about every third year you're supposed to bring a tithe, a tenth of your produce, to the storehouses to be used by the Levites who did not own land and to feed the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. Instructions are given in Deuteronomy that when you go and harvest your fields or your vineyard or your olive trees, you shouldn't go over the harvesting twice. You should leave whatever remains for the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner to survive on. When you celebrate festivals of the Lord, like Feast of Tabernacles, make sure to set a table, a chair, for the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner so they can rejoice and celebrate with you. And make sure that you protect and provide justice for the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner who have no voice on their own. And why were they to do these things? Because as God says in verse 18 of our passage, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner. But why? On what grounds do you provide and protect and love the most useless and draining in a society? Because as we read two weeks ago, we are all made in God's image. So God says in verse 27 of Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Two weeks ago, we looked more at this, but it basically says all human life has divine, spiritual, and eternal significance because we are made in the image of God. God has a connection and concern for every single person. Every person matters immensely, and every person matters equally. A similar thing is stated in Psalm 139, when David is declaring the wonders of a God who knows his very details. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Psalm 139 tells us that all people owe their existence to God, and every person is fearfully and wonderfully made. There are no mistakes. From conception to natural death, everyone has dignity and purpose. But this also tells us our lives are not our own. Our minds, our will, our bodies, our souls, our choices, every aspect of our being is a gift from God. And every aspect of our being finds its purpose, its voice, its song in God and God's ways. The Westminster Catechism says that the main purpose of all people is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And if on top of that we believe that our worth and dignity are given from God and are not based on our talent or success, you know what that tells us? It tells us that every single person, from the trash-picking orphan in the slums of Mumbai to the Queen of England in Windsor Castle, everyone can glorify God fully. The orphan and the queen, there's no difference. In God's eyes, all life is sacred. The unborn, the aging, the sick, and the disabled. And that tells everyone in here, tells every one of us, God loves you. No matter what you have done, or what's been done to you. No matter how you have failed or fallen short or don't measure up to the world's standards, God made you and God loves you. Jesus said it very clearly, for God so loved the world, for God so loved you that he sent his only son that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. It is the manger and the cross and being made in the image of God that compels us outward to the least. In the Greco-Roman world, a couple centuries before and a couple centuries after Christ, it was normative to kill the disabled, the sickly, or poor babies. You would leave them out and expose them to the elements and to animals. And it was, it was done. Everyone thought that it was normative to do. If your baby was slightly off, it was not unusual to just leave it out until Christianity came along. And the early church not only said this was wrong, by pushed, pushed back by saying it was wrong, they also rescued and raised these abandoned babies. Why did they do it? Because with their Jewish brothers, they believed in the image of God. They viewed all people as created equal, that even a deformed child, even a pagan child, even that poor child was made in God's image. Gregory of Nazianzus in the fourth century, a bishop, writing about his brother, St. Basil the Great, who started hospitals, basically, said, the sick and disabled have been made in the image of God in the same way you and I have, and perhaps they preserve that image better than we 
The early church fought for the life of the weakest because they believed they were all made in the image of God. And because the gospel is a salvation by grace. It's not the talented and successful who are in and failures who are out. It's not the high caste who are in and the low caste who are out. It's not the good and religious who are in and the bad who are out. It is by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God so that none of us can boast. That grace compelled them to love the least, and so did the cross. Jesus' sacrifice of himself for us, the undeserving and least, caused that early church to push out and care for the dying, the sick, and the unwanted. Now, since individualism and autonomy are primary in the West, we tend to start with this sort of a phrase. What about my rights, my liberties? Am I being allowed to do what I want? But in Christianity, what is primary and first is always Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who, as we said in the Philippians 2 Confession of Faith, who, though he was in nature God, did not consider his divinity as something to exploit for his own good, but gave up his rights for us by becoming a human being, humbling himself, becoming a servant, and dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus Christ gave up his rights for our good, which is why we always start with the question of, who am I in Christ, and what is my calling because of Christ? Not, am I getting my fair share? We start with Christ, and we are called to the way of the manger and the cross to fulfill our image-bearing and love towards all people, even the least. Two years ago, Amy Julia Becker, writing about her daughter, Penny, and an interaction she had, said this. Penny, now grown up a few years, at five o'clock, my oldest daughter, Penny, finds me in bed. Cough drops, wrappers, a used tea bag, and Dayquil packets surround me. Come on up, sweetie, I say, and she climbs in next to me. Penny has brought her spelling book. Her second grade assignment this week involves 10 plural words. As she spells each one, I think about how much work it takes for her to form each letter. An occupational therapist has worked with her on her fine motor skills since she was a baby. And those words testify to hours of practice, from the straight crayon lines on white paper as a toddler to today's careful, precise strokes of the pencil. I love our daughter. I am proud of her. She has Down syndrome. We finish with spelling assignment, and I lean back on the pillow, sniffly and hoarse, and say, Tell me about your day, Penny. Penny is wearing a polka-dotted sweater and a purple skirt and white leggings. She has just gotten her hair cut, and she tucks a wayward strand behind her ear, behind her pink glasses. I'll tell you about mine if you tell me about yours first. And so I tell her. I tell her about being sick, but I also tell her that I've been thinking about an article that I need to write about a test that can tell pregnant women if their baby has Down syndrome or not. Penny looks up at me. Mom, tell them don't be scared. I meet her eye. I know she is thinking about her own birth story, about the fear 
that her dad and I experienced when we first heard her diagnosis. Tell them you don't need to worry. I put my arm around her and kissed the top of her head. Penny, what would you tell a mom who just found out that her baby has Down syndrome, I ask? She says it again, don't be scared. Do you live a happy life, Penny? She giggles as if that's a silly question that I ask. Yes! Well, what makes you happy? I'm flexible, friends, PowerPoint, my family, my grandmother, and my grandpa. As an explanatory note, Down syndrome usually means low muscle tone, which has a side benefit of flexibility. And Penny is working on a PowerPoint presentation in school. Was well, there anything that makes you sad in life? Nothing at all, she considers for a moment. Only thunder and lightning. I do not like that. Was there anything hard in your life? Nope. I remind her that she had to go to the hospital on Monday to get tubes in her ears for the fifth time. Well, getting tubes in my ears is hard. Is there anything else that's hard for you, like at school? Staying in the room and controlling my hands. What's your favorite part of school? The whole day, reading, and Dr. Seuss's birthday. What do you know about God, Penny? Oh, good question. He makes people. He gives us our lives. Well, do you ever talk to God? I pray, like when thunderstorms are here. I actually did pray when I had tubes and for them to take out the IV. Then she writes me a note. It says, Dear Mom and Amy Julia, feel better in the morning and really feel absolutely better. God does not make mistakes. Every single human being, from conception to natural death, has been made in his image for his purpose to glorify and reveal him to the world. That's our calling, that's our identity, and that's our hope. Let's pray. God, in a culture and world that values performance and achievement, let us not live under the burden of living up to the world's standards. Let us find our identity in Christ, the one who made us and who died for us. And let us find our purpose in glorifying him and living to love those around us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we pray. Amen.